You're listening to Alamo City Limits Podcast with Noah McGarrow-George, the official San Antonio Spurs podcast of Pounding the Rock in SB Nation. What's going on, San Antonio Spurs fans? Welcome back to Alamo City Limits, the official San Antonio Spurs podcast of SB Nation and Pounding the Rock. Today, we're going to be talking about Team USA and the future of San Antonio Spurs basketball. I've got a very special guest, founder of B-Ball Index, Tim, a.k.a. Cranjus McBasketball. How are you doing today, Tim? I, hey, I'm doing much better now that the U- Team USA is winning. Happy to be here, <laughs> and thank, thank you for having me, Noah. Of course. I'm excited to talk to you, and let's just hop into the first topic, Team USA basketball. Now, there was a ton of criticism heaped on to head coach Greg Popovich after those first couple losses to Nigeria, to Australia. You know, Stephen A. Smith said that he has a spotty record since Kawhi. That's a little bit undebatable. Kendrick Perkins says that he's arrogant. Um, he's being outcoached. I don't really agree with that. And it seems like a lot of people are sort of using this as an opportunity to sort of heap on criticism of Greg Popovich. And I want to get your opinion. So what do you think has gone wrong for this historically dominant international basketball program? And I do realize they won their last game against Arsenal. Argentina and and sort of you know how much blame should we place on Greg Popovich how much blame should we place on the players I think it's a little bit of both but even more so just the situation there's this is a team with a bunch of new players that haven't really played together there's a lack of practice happening we're seeing and we saw it from game one to game two to this last game them adjusting to the whistle the way the NBA is called is a good bit different from how we're seeing these games called we're seeing guys expecting touch fouls and you know one dribble you touch me I'm going to pull right up and try to get my shot off as quickly as possible so it counts in the continuation but in these games they're not calling it at all so those just end up being bad shots or we're seeing the uh, team USA not take advantage of rules like the goaltending rule and being able to bat balls off of the rim we haven't really seen much of that at all whereas other teams are winning those little margins and that's just part of adjusting to the game and There are, I mean, certainly NBA players on other teams, but this is a USA roster constructed pretty much of only NBA players. So it's very new for everybody versus new for a couple guys on other teams. And a lot of those international players played overseas before coming to the NBA. So it may not be completely new to them. So I think that's part of it. I think the roster construction itself is a little bit to blame. There's not much point of attack defense on this team. We have some really, you know, star studded offensive players, defensively, you know, you've got some guys here and there, but, uh, you know, Bradley Beal, Dame Lillard isn't the defensive backcourt (laughs) that you'd like to throw out there at all times. So that can be trouble. And then like in general with basketball construction, and we'll talk about this later, different players have different jobs on offense. And a lot of the jobs that these players for the NBA that are going on this team USA team have are all shot creators. They're all used to having the ball in their hands. And, you know, we hear it thrown out all the time. Oh, there's only one ball. This is one of those situations where that kind of does apply. We don't have guys used to playing off ball, used to cutting, used to screening for each other. And that's actually something where some of the, you know, young Spurs guys have have played pretty well is just that team basketball element of this. But I think that's a lot of it. And we've seen so far defenses use a couple tactics here and there to slow down isolations or slow down post-ups where they're sending extra help. And those are beatable, they're exploitable. But if you're not organized and you're not prepared, it's hard to beat that sort of stuff. And we've seen Team USA get more and more strong at uh, countering those simple little X's and O's things that off the gate, first scrimmage, these games don't even really count. They weren't quite ready to be playing that X's and O's battle. And part of that's on Greg Popovich, but not in a way that like, I I think it's, you know, substantial criticism that, you know, these games don't mean anything yet. They're, They're getting to play with each other. They're building that chemistry. And 
I wouldn't jump to early conclusions because I have a pretty strong feeling they'll be able to turn things around. And we're seeing that a little bit already. Yeah. And that was sort of my next question is like, do, do these games really matter? I'm looking at them and I think it's, they're just warm up games. They're exhibition games. The, and like you said, these guys aren't used to playing with each other. You look at the last Olympic roster. There are two members from that roster. There's Kevin Durant and there's Draymond Green. Everyone else is new. And most of these guys would never play with each other under normal circumstances. And just mm-hmm. sort of from like a coach's perspective or really just like an analyst's perspective, how important is it that they get familiar with each other? Because you look at these other international teams, like, Joe Ingles talked about in the press conference the other day, these guys from Australia, not only have they added NBA caliber players to the roster, but these guys have been together for a decade. You know, the Mm -hmm. same thing for like Argentina, you could say the same thing for Spain and in Nigeria. I mean, while maybe they all haven't been together as long, they're familiar with each other. They play FIBA basketball with a pretty consistent roster. How important is that for the United States? Yeah, it matters. It's hard to quantify exactly how important, but enough so that it is costing this team points each game. And and we're still seeing them figure things out. And if we're seeing the same issues a month from now, then it's start, you know, then it's time for Stephen A. Smith and, and whoever <laughs> to start, you know, calling people out. But right now we're just seeing guys adjust to a different, you know, basketball, a different set of rules, different set of teammates. So it's just part of that learning process. And some of these struggles early on, maybe you're just going to make it more worth it down the line. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Now I'll ask you this. I, for me, team USA is still the favorite to win gold. Is that your opinion as well? They have to be. And if they aren't, I see that as a huge gambling opportunity. Um, <laughs> they, they, they should be strongly favored. They've got the guns and they're, they're going to be adding a few more as well once the finals are over. So I, I would strongly favor them to win this title. Exactly. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And, and like you said, you know, they're going to be getting Drew Holiday. They'll be getting Chris Middleton. They'll be getting Devin Booker. But for the meantime, we have a bunch of select team guys and one amongst them is Keldon Johnson. So I'd love to get your opinion on Keldon Johnson, his performance from the first couple of scrimmages. I know he hasn't been, you know, a key player. He's not playing a ton of minutes, but what is your evaluation of him in there? And do you think he fits pretty well with this roster so far? He, he fits really well. He is one of the few guys on this team that like is very, you know, used to and and has a good IQ and has been coached well on moving off ball, cutting and, you know, knowing when to crash for rebounds. He's missed a couple layups. He's gotten some putbacks. He's played some pretty good defense, but just the IQ and the, you know, I'm like, yeah, this is definitely a Spurs guy uh, watching, watching out there with a bunch of other superstars who are like, you know, dribble, dribble, drive, I'm cut off. I'm going to kick it out. Someone else is going to ISO then someone else will ISO. And then you see Kelton Johnson cut perfectly as the defense is rotating and get a layup. That sort of stuff is much needed on a team full of superstars. You need some of those glue guys. And I think that's what he provides for this sort of group, along with really strong defense. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. And and specifically, I'm thinking of one play where Bam was sort of backing down the post and people weren't really paying attention to Kelton. He makes that cut. He finishes at the rim. So I do think he sort of adds an interesting dynamic as a player who is used to playing off ball, as a player who's used to really... Taking pride, and I'm not going to say that the other USA basketball members don't take pride in playing defense, but that's sort of one of Keldon's hallmarks with the Spurs. That's one mm-hmm. of the reasons he's earned minutes. I mean, if you're playing for Greg Popovich, you're not playing defense, you're probably not playing for him, right? You're probably on the bench. So I've liked what I've seen from him. And I've asked Pop this, I've asked Coach Spolstra this, and I, I kind of want your opinion too. Do you think that this experience with USA basketball is going to matter to his like long-term development? Or do you think this is just sort of an exhibition game? It's just sort of warm up for him. It doesn't really matter in the long, you know, grand scheme of things. 
I think every little thing matters and he has an opportunity, not just in these games, because he's only playing so many minutes out there on the court, but in practices, hanging around with the guys, building that rapport, picking their brains. It's one of those things where like you go into an internship and they're like, this can be as much or as little as you want. We need him to be leaning into this experience, picking the brains of guys, challenging them at practice and trying to learn as much as he can, all of those little skills and things that can help him be a better one-on-one player or a better driver, whatever it happens to be, something to see the floor better, see the defense better. That experience, being around this coaching staff, being around those players, I think is certainly value add. Exactly how much so is hard to say, but I would love to see him continue to grow, continue to progress in his career and have this be something he calls back upon a few years from now. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you here. And I kind of want to move on to talking about San Antonio's young core. It's sort of a polarizing topic, even among the Spurs fan base. But before we really like get into the numbers from B-Ball Index or any of the terminology or stuff, I kind of wanted some clarification on the metrics, the terminology. So people will always say, you know, basketball is more than just statistics, right? But statistics and specifically the statistics that this website provides, B-Ball Index provides, I think are really great because they add context if you were actually watching the games. Now, could you sort of break down a few of these terminologies for me, like specifically LeBron, matchup difficulty, defensive versatility, defensive role, offensive archetype, like how are those things derived? And just sort of talk about them just for a little bit for me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, I agree with you that a lot of times, you know, the criticism against stats is like, you can't capture everything in stats. Well, we can capture a lot more now with (laughs) statistics than we used to be able to a year ago, three years ago, five years ago. And LeBron is one of those things, the, the matchup difficulty, defensive versatility, these are all leveraging data and math that we just weren't <laughs> using a couple of years ago. So we'll start with LeBron. It stands for luck adjusted player estimate utilizing a box prior regularized on off, which is a, a little bit of a mouthful. <laughs> we call it LeBron instead. And it is like your box plus minus or your real plus minus or 538 has their metric called Raptor. They're all estimating player impact per 100 possessions on the court compared to a league average player. So if someone's a plus two, that means over hundred possessions, you're going to expect to get two extra points for your team compared to an average player. And we use box score data for this, but we also use on-off data. And with each of those, we've uh, gotten a little fancy with our math and tried to account for role and account for instances or occurrences in like on-off data that we know are just luck-based. Like if I'm playing against the Spurs and Keldon Johnson shoots 50% on 10 free throws when I'm in the game, but when I'm out of the game, he shoots 100% on 10 free throws. I didn't do anything to make him miss those free throws, Uh, but it's going to make me look better than I otherwise would in that on off data. So adjusting for free throws, adjusting for opposing team three point shooting, which is something that like, if it's contested more, it's going to go in less, but we know at the individual defender level, they don't have an impact on the team's ability to impact three point shooting. So a couple of things we have done a bunch of, you know, analysis on realize that these are just, you know, you're lucky or you're unlucky. And accounting for that helps remove a lot of noise in the data. So we do that with the on-off data. We use uh, RAPM data, regularized adjusted plus minus, which will account for who your teammates are, who the opponents are. So if you're in a lineup of death and like you do just fine, it's going to be able to recognize that because when you come out and someone else comes in and the lineup does just as well, they're like, oh, well, maybe Tim wasn't adding all that much, but it looks at every single one of the lineups and it looks at both teams. So luck adjusted, using those advanced RAPM calcs on the on-off side. And then on the box score side, we 
optimize the weighting of different things, points, rebounds, and whatever. And then we also stabilize small samples using the offensive archetypes that we'll talk a little bit about later, where let's say it's the beginning of the season and JaVale McGee and Carl Anthony Towns are both shooting 20% on their three-pointers. The question that we need to ask this stat is, do we expect both of those players to continue shooting 20% or continue shooting, you know, the league average or the same, you know, average for centers? No, because they have different jobs based on how they're used. We know Cat is going to probably shoot better on threes than JaVale McGee, who's barely taking any. So we look at their jobs and we look at the averages for players in those jobs and we use that to fill in some of the ambiguity on smaller samples. So there's a lot going on with different cool math techniques. It's a lot of best practicing from techniques other people have used in other stats. And it ends up with a pretty accurate compared to some of its peers uh, on off statistic that uh, shines pretty nicely on a few Spurs players. Yeah. And, and I try to use it relatively often when I do writing, I, I really like everything that y'all provide. Now I sort of want to move on to talking about like defensive roles, um, sort of like defensive versatility mm -hmm. and offensive archetype. How do y'all, how do y'all come to that conclusion? Is that mostly like watching the game and then applying that? Or is it like the types of attempts that players are taking, or is it sort of a mix of all that? Yeah. So you, you'll see. And like, every time we have these, like, tweets auto scheduled to say, Hey, here are our offensive archetypes. People will be like, ah, someone else came up with another way to do this already. Other people, you, like you can come up with a way to categorize players that's based on watching them. But if it's not scalable and you're not able to look at all 530 NBA players at the same time, look at thousands of college players, hundreds of WNBA players. If you can't do it for all of those groups going back a bunch of years, how valuable is what you're able to do? So we lean on the math. And we are looking at how players are utilized, not just where are your shots, like a shot chart is very limited in, in what it tells us about how a player is getting to where they're getting. So instead we look at play type. So like you're isolating or posting up or running a pick and roll and you're the ball handler or you're popping or you're cutting um, or you're running off of a pin down. Those are all sorts of ways to get to your shots. So we look at that. We'll look at like three point attempt rate, drive rates. Uh, we estimate how often different players are initiating the offense for a team. We uh, estimate how often their three-pointers are standing still versus moving. And based off of all of that on offense, we came up with 12 different jobs, 12 different offensive archetypes for players. We have four big men roles. So there's roll and cut bigs, your rim runners, your JaVale McGee's, your Jakob Pertles, your guys that are going to go be the garbage man. We have our post scorers who are those back to the basket scores. Nikola Jokic is a great example uh, your stretch bigs. So, you know, that I think these are pretty self-explanatory. And yeah. then our versatile bigs who do a bit of the stretch big stuff and also the post scoring, they'll, they'll kind of do everything. So those are the big man roles. And then we have on ball guard and wing roles, and then off ball guard and wing roles for the off ball guards and wings. We have stationary shooters. They kind of evolve. We're talking like Pokemon. They evolve into movement shooters <laughs> who evolve into off screen shooters. So it goes from, I mostly am a shooter, but I stand still catch and shoot to, I'm a shooter, but I'm able to kind of relocate from the corner to the wing or the wing to the corner, or I drive, I kick it out, and then I'm back up to the three-pointer catch and shoot. That kind of movement, it's a different footwork. It requires some different skills, but you're still a shooter. So you're a movement shooter. And then the next evolution is that off-screen shooter where you're coming off of screens, reading the defense and knowing, you know, on a flare screen, if they're trailing me, maybe I curl versus maybe I fade if they're going under, those sorts of things. And then athletic finishers are those off-ball uh they're going to get their putbacks. So they're going to cut. They're not really, you know, 
ball handlers and they're also not really shooters. They, they do their work, their dirty work on the inside. And then we have our on ball guards and wings, secondary ball handlers, primary ball handlers, uh, slashers who are, you know, the balls in their hand a lot, but they're not really three point shooters, more like a De'Aaron Fox. He likes to get to the rim. Uh, and then our shot creators, which is 80% of the team USA roster. Those guys that are, you know, you're going to get the ball to them, let them go ISO. Uh, we've analyzed like how much scheme and optimization of rosters matters for these different roles. Shot creators are shot creators. It doesn't really matter what scheme you're running. If they're able to do their thing, they're, they're doing pretty well. So those are some of the roles on offense. We do similar stuff on defense, looking at the, the types of players you defend using these archetypes, using matchup data, uh, looking at where you're defending shots, defensive activity, stuff like that. And we're able to see if someone's like a point of attack defender or a wing stopper, you're defending scoring wings, or I, I don't want to get, I'm getting super sure, in the weeds. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll raise it up a little bit, but we have some really cool seven different defensive roles as well. And then the matchup difficulty and defensive versatility stats look at partial possession matchup data. So we could say for this possession, Tim defended that guy for 30% of the time, that guy for 20% of the time, that guy for 50% of the time. So we look at, you know, if you're switching, if you're helping, whatever it happens to be. And then from that, looking at all the players you're guarding, what is like the average usage and the average offensive impact of that player? And we throw that all together and come up with the average uh, matchup difficulty that you're taking on. So if, if you're guarding guys who never touch the ball and aren't impactful, you are probably taking on easier matchups than someone who is chasing around dudes who always have the ball in their hands and are really helpful for the opposing team offense. And then versatility looks at point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center. What's that breakdown look like? A perfectly versatile defender would be guarding all five of those 20% of the time. A like perfectly unversatile defender would be guarding one of them 100% of the time. We uh, look at the breakdown for each player and then the math basically looks at how far away are they from being that perfect, versatile defender. So it's not, you know, you're the most capable. It's just a, another way to look at what your job is. So we, with role, with versatility, with difficulty, these are all context-based stats that we then can apply with the defensive component of our LeBron metric and tell us, you know, he's impactful or he's not impactful. Maybe this guy, maybe two players have the same defensive impact, but one of them is taking on really tough matchups and the other one is completely hiding on defense. And with these sorts of stats, we're able to dig a little bit deeper, have some more context and really talk basketball with the numbers the way we'd like to talk basketball at a bar or with your teammates <laughs> or watching at home with your friends. Yeah, thank you so much for really breaking that down for us. And I, I, I just wanted to get your sort of break down on it so that people at home who are not familiar with the terminology or how you sort of come to, to these stats can understand it a little bit better. Now, I want to talk about some of the stats in relation to specific players on this team and specifically some of the members of the young core. We'll call them young core. Some of them are older than others. Like, you know, Derek White's 27. DeJounte is going to be 25 soon, but generally Spurs fans consider them to be part of the young core. So mm -hmm. we'll go ahead and talk about them in that context. Now, when we look at DeJounte Murray, the things that stand out for me is that he has one of the highest uh, matchup difficulties on defense and that his defensive versatility, it's not super high, but that he's pretty effective in what he does. What do you think some of these numbers tell us about DeJounte as, as a defender and maybe as DeJounte as, as sort of a secondary creator, if you want to call him that? Yeah, they tell us he's really good. <laughs> um, he is a point of attack defender by our defensive roles. He's taking on that lead ball handler 
And generally, we see, see high matchup difficulty with those sorts of defenders. But even among them, he's really, really high. He has an A grade there. A minus versatility is still very, very good, especially for a guy in that role. And we see that translate to an A grade defensive impact. And with all of our numbers, we have the number itself. We translate that to a percentile, the percentage of the league you're higher than, and then a letter grade, A, B, C, D, F, um, with minuses and pluses and everything. So he is really good and at a very, very difficult job. So as a defensive player, he's just about everything you would want to ask for. On the offensive end, he still has a pretty high impact, a minus grade there, 93rd percentile overall impact, and his role offensively as is as a slasher. So he's one of those on-ball guys trying to get to the rim. And if we dig a little bit deeper into some of our other statistics that analyze his different tendencies and skills, he is a pretty darn good guy at getting to the rim and then also finishing at the rim the three-point shot needs to be a little bit better but the playmaking is there it's not elite but it's very good and he just flashes a bunch of potential as a young guard in this league yeah yeah I would agree with you there I really like DeJounte now let's move on to Derek White looking at the numbers do you think that it sort of suggests that he's a good complement to DeJounte Murray, do you think he can be that? And, and I'm, I'm sort of speaking in terms of if DeMar DeRozan is gone next season, because there's a very strong chance that, you know, he walks for nothing this offseason or they maybe try to do a, tr- a sign and trade. And that's one of the combinations that Spurs fans want to see, right? Like a few years ago when they were finally both healthy, they only played about 200 minutes together. This season, we saw them play a little bit more, but Derek White was hurt. Do the numbers, do you think that they say that they can complement each other? And what do they say really about Derek White in general? Yeah, so his jobs are offensively as a secondary ball handler, which meshes just fine with a slasher like Murray. Defensively, he's a wing stopper. So he's, you know, DeJounte is going to take the other team's probably point guard and Derek White can go take their small forward, their their Kawhis, their LeBrons, their whoever's going to be, you know, that, that ISO scorer, their Jason Tatums. And he's been taking on pretty high difficulty, pretty high versatility, really good uh, defensive impact, a B plus there in a very difficult job and offensively it I think the thing for me when looking at the Spurs young players is they're pretty similar in that they get to the rim well they finish at the rim well they don't space the floor so when you're looking at roster construction we talked earlier with Team USA about having a bunch of shot creators the Spurs have a bunch of guys that get to the rim they don't have a lot of guys that are going to away from the ball pull the defense away from the rim to open up some of those driving lanes so I think you can certainly have multiple players of this you know, in these roles with these skill sets on the court at the same time, and you can build together like that. But the complementary pieces around them would, uh, in a focus of mine going into this offseason, would be to add some shooting. If you're going to replace your your DeMar DeRozan's and some of the other older players on the roster with other players, add some shooting so that these guys who like to get to the rim and are already very good at it can do so with more space. So together, I think the two of them are fine, but you want to have the pieces around them complement those skill sets. Yeah, no, that's that's a great explanation there. And, and let's talk about Lonnie Walker. So he's sort of a guy who people have been hoping would be the shooter for this team. I mean, obviously, he has some other skills. He can put the ball on the floor a little bit. He can create his own offense a little bit. I think he could potentially down the road have be a sort of a three-level score. But to this point, we haven't seen it. He hasn't finished well at the rim. You know, he's not a great percentage from three, about league average. And in the mid-range, it doesn't look good on decent volume. And one of the things that stands out to me when I'm looking at these numbers is his defensive versatility is pretty low. His matchup difficulty is pretty high, but his LeBron was awful. He finished 530th out of, I think, 550 so players. What do you think about Lonnie Walker? Like, do you, are you confident he's somebody who the Spurs could potentially 
build around going forward or what, what are you, what are your thoughts on him generally? Because I'm so I'm sort of at a loss for what to expect from him at this point. From an outsider perspective and without watching him every day, but just seeing the numbers, I wouldn't say it's the most promising. I think his shooting is a good compliment to the players he's around. But like you mentioned, not the best from a finishing standpoint. The playmaking isn't really there. And, and for a guard, you'd, you'd want some playmaking. His job in offense has been as a movement shooter. Just So just kind of, you know, out of the way, a, a secondary creator if he needs to, but uh, more a complimentary piece. I think with as low a an impact as he has, you'd want to see him placed into a role defensively that better, you know, is a, a little bit scaled down. It's hard to ask a guy who's not as good defensively to take on matchups more difficult than 88% of players in the NBA, which is what they're doing, or be more versatile than 79% of players in the NBA, which is what they're doing. So maybe ask a little bit less, scale a little bit down, and you'll see him be a little bit less exposed on defense, if that's the way you want to word it. So I think there are ways to have a better impact with the skill set he has currently. His shooting isn't fantastic, and a lot of the other offensive skills aren't flashing super high potential. So I don't know if he would be a piece I'd say I'd build around, but if he can improve the shooting and be a, an off ball complimentary piece to some of these other guys that like to get to the rim, I, I think you can, you know, continue to have him on the roster and make more of him. And he's only what 22, 23. So there's still some time. Yeah, he's pretty young. And, and I also want to ask you this question. So do you think it's, I mean, you haven't seen every Spurs game and I don't expect you to, they weren't a winning team. They didn't make the playoffs. They were in the play-in. Do you think it's more of he's a bad defender or do you think it is really that he's been given such a, a tough assignment? Because it sounds like he was given some really difficult assignments. Like off the top of my head, I'm thinking, you know, he guarded Jalen Brown. He guarded Jason Tatum. He guarded Kawhi Leonard. He guarded Bradley Beal. Those are all NBA level guys. Like that, that seems like a really tough thing to ask of him. Do you think if he is moved to a lesser role or, or asked to do less, do you genuinely believe that he's going to be someone who can maybe flash more serviceability than he has been? Because there's a lot of Spurs fans and writers who say, you know, this guy's just awful at defense. And I'm just not sure that's hundred percent the case. It's, I mean, it's hard to tell. I certainly think the impact would be less negative, but I wouldn't expect somebody who has an impact defensively lower than 99% of NBA players to suddenly jump to average or above average. But if you could take them from like an F to a D plus, that can really help your defense potentially. So I, I think there's some room to optimize what he is, but I wouldn't call him a good defender uh, or somebody that's flashing defensive potential. I think that's fair. That's fair. And, and, and I want to ask you about like just in general with this young core, you know, they've got DeJounte Murray, Derek White, Lonnie Walker, Keldon Johnson, Devin Vassell. Would you be confident in, in saying that any of these guys can become that alpha? And really with DeMar DeRozan there and Rudy Gay there and Patty Mills, they ate a lot of touches. They had a lot of minutes. How much do you think that would factor into that next year if they are given the reins? I think the guy who has the best chance would be DeJounte Murray. If he can develop a more consistent three-point shot, he's – I mean, that's that's the thing keeping him from being an absolute stud. He already is a super impactful player defensively, you know, lights out, difficulty, versatility, impact, all of that stuff. He, he, he does it at a really tough, you know, very valuable position on defense. Offensively, he's very, very good at a number of really key skills, especially skills for his role. He's just got to be able to shoot a little bit better from three, and if so, that helps unlock things for him because – if he's somebody that you can go under ball screens against, 
that makes it harder for him to be good at what he's good at. He's, he's like a really good young pitcher in baseball that has one really good pitch. And you have to be able to develop those other pitches because if they know what's coming, it's easier to prepare against it and be impactful against it. So if he can develop that change up and that curveball, his fastball is going to be even better than it is today. So that's the next step for him. And given his age, I don't know that it's realistic to expect him to suddenly become an elite three-point shooter, especially pull-up shooter in, in the way that it would manipulate defensive ball screen coverages. But I would say he's the one that's closest to being able to do that and I think in general, I mean, with, with Derek White, that's another guy that I think I feel pretty good about him being able to develop into a pretty good score with more touches. He's going to get more attention. And I mean, with San Antonio, they don't seem to get that national attention you'd love to see despite having tons and tons of people in the area. But I, I feel pretty good about those two as being two of my top three players, I'd say on, on like a, you know, a team that's able to eventually contend. If they can develop, add some help eventually, I, I feel good about having them somewhere in that mix. Yeah, and, and I look at the roster and I think that I'm not necessarily, not necessarily saying they're like one piece away or two pieces away, but it does seem like if they had that superstar, they'd be a lot better. I mean, obviously that would be the case for all of the league, right? You get the superstar mm -hmm. and then everything else sort of falls into place some of the time. Like you look at the Mavericks, they have Luka. They've got Chris Stapps, who didn't really live up to expectations this year, but the rest of the roster maybe is not optimized for you to win a championship, where I think you look at the Spurs roster, if you add that superstar, they sort of look like a very competitive roster that could compete, but they don't have that guy. One of the last couple of guys who I want to go over with you, and we don't have to spend too much time on them, but Luka Shamanich, Trey Jones, and Jakob Pertl. You know, what, what are your opinions of them? I, I really like Jakob. I think he's really impactful for, for his role. But Trey Jones is a question mark to me. You know, he's not shooting threes. Um, he didn't get a ton of minutes in the NBA, but he looks solid in the G League. And then Luka Shamanich really just hasn't done much of anything. Granted, he hasn't gotten much opportunity. Yeah, so when they don't have a lot of opportunity, it's, it's hard for a data guy like me to draw too many conclusions. But I can say that Trey Jones, decent driver. He's been a poor pick and roll scorer. He's not really a shooting threat at all. It appears from, from perimeter. So it's one thing to not be great, but still, you know, get him up when you're not even putting those shots up and you have just no gravity. You're not able to draw those, those defenders out. That is the type of guard that you can't really play with, with the, the type of slashing offensive players that the Spurs are building around. So that is a huge red flag to me. He's not a good defender. He's had a, a pretty large negative impact. So I'm fairly low on Trey Jones. Shamanich, he gets to, to the rim pretty well, finishes well, rebounds well, but he's not, you know, a passer, role man. He's not a shooter. He's not a one-on-one -on -one player. He's inefficient in a lot of areas. So he can do some things well, but he's got to add another couple skills, a couple NBA skills to be a little bit more impactful. And then Jakob Pertl, he's very good for what he does. I mean, 98th percentile defensive impact. Uh, he's an elite rim protector. He's maybe chasing some blocks at times. And because of that, not defensively rebounding as well as you'd like to see, but he's scoring at the rim pretty well. We have badges at B-Ball Index, the way that like 2K has badges. Yeah. <laughs> he has a gold rim protector badge. He has a gold contact finisher badge and he has a silver offensive rebound uh, hunter badge. So he's, he's getting some extra possessions. He's finishing through contact and he's defending the rim and for a roll and cut big, that is the kind of, you know, play that can, you know, plug him into a team that's ready to contend. And, and that's someone that's, you know, going to be able to do a really good job. I think you just need to add some of the dynamic pick and roll ball handling around him. D guys that can, you know, hit those pull-ups and draw two defenders and coverages. 
instead of just being able to drop back and, and stay and, and play that lob, that will help open up more scoring opportunities for him in the future. Definitely, definitely. And, and with sort of with all the things that we've talked about in mind, I want to go ahead and kind of close things out by talking about the Spurs long-term future, sort of starting with, you know, they have $50 million in cap space this offseason. You know, how do you think they should approach free agency with sort of a weaker crop of talent available? And, you know, what are some of the players that they should be targeting? Like what kind of players should they be targeting to improve this roster? I'm really glad you asked because something I've done over the past 15 days is we've picked uh, so I, I have my own podcast. We have our own discord server and, and we've done a thing where we pick two NBA teams a day and we're going to go through like, what is our plan for this off season uh, from our players? Who are we keeping? What's our general strategy? Who might we go after? And the Spurs were one of the first teams that we went to. And what we came to the conclusion for was our general goal or approach was to kind of turn the page from some of those older expensive players and use our cap space, build around our young guards. We know what they're good at, build a, a roster with complementary pieces and be a team that can go into this free agency, knowing that you can take some swings at re restricted free agents, knowing that even if you don't get them, it's, I mean, you're not chasing a title this year anyway, and you can kind of punt that space towards next off season, but you're in one of the few, you're one of the few teams in a position that you have the space and you have some of the young players that you could just go take a shot. Go take a shot at Alonzo Ball. Go take a shot at a Gary Trent Jr. or a John Collins. There are players out there that might be gettable if you go to the right price. And if you can add a couple of those rising young players in with this current crop of guys, that can jumpstart this, this rebuilding process that I think you'd be looking to move into this year. So, you know, renounce your DeRozan, your Rudy Gay, Patty Mills, um, Lyles. I think Bellinelli is still on the, the, the books, Cunningham. Wave uh, Jeffries, pick up uh, Eubanks's team option. I think you'd want to bring Luol, uh, or bring not Luol Deng, bring Gorgie Zhang back. I, I'm assuming since they picked him up as a non, not really a non-competing non team last year, but as a buyout guy, they have some plans for him. So we'll say he comes back. And then you've got like 49 million in space or something like that. And then the room exception, a couple picks. Uh, so I think for ball handlers, I'd target Cameron Payne, who can shoot pretty well. He gets to the rim well. I, Phoenix is limited in what they're able to offer him. They can only really offer him about like a three-year, $40 million deal. Or I'm sorry, uh, they can offer him about $10.5 million, $10 million a year. So if you offer him like a 340, that's more than he's getting by staying. Um, if you offer him more than that, you can. He's, he's certainly gettable. Lonzo Ball is a guy on a team that worth seeing publicly is is very feeling a lot of angst about playing paying 20 million to keep him or 18 million to keep him so i'd inquire there uh gary trent jr on another team that may not want to pay more than 15 16 mil to to bring him back maybe you look at duncan robinson although the, i think miami would would match whatever and then from a big man standpoint i think bobby portis is a very obtainable guy that milwaukee just can't afford to bring him back they don't have the money they can't really give him any sort of raise so he's going to go to a different team and you are one of the teams that can go after him. And I think he fits well with the other players on the roster. And then John Collins is a very, very good young big man that I think would also fit the roster and may also be obtainable. I'd say guys like Dinwiddie, Otto Porter Jr., Tim Hardaway Jr., Fournier, they don't really match the timeline. So I leave them to other teams, let other teams that have cap space, chew up that space on them. I'd focus more on these younger guys generally that better match the timeline. So if I had to pick, I'd say go offer Cameron Payne, go offer Bobby Portis, and then one of Collins or Trent, one of those restricted free agents, and see if you can really build onto this young core and, and be in a pretty good position moving into this next season to have like a really fun young team.
Yeah, and you know, it's actually really interesting. Spurs fans are obsessed with John Collins right now. They love John Collins. I like him. I think he fits well for the team. And I sort of want your opinion on this. Pretty much everyone who's hopped on the podcast has talked about John Collins, at least for a little bit. My concern with John Collins, and I'm totally open to having my concerns, you know, thrown out the window. But my concern with John Collins is that the majority of his offense is created by other players, right? 80% of his baskets or nearly 80% of his baskets were assisted. He was a guy who had superior spacing in Atlanta. If he comes to San Antonio, do you have any concerns that, you know, he's asked to do more and he's asked to do more in a system that really isn't as beneficial for him? So there you see his efficiency sort of drop, even if his per game numbers may go up. I think that's a fair concern and, and it certainly matches with, with what the data is saying, but I, I see him as a guy that like as a pick and popper, he complements what you'd want to do with, with your star players. Well, or your top players. Well, he has a little bit of that one-on-one game. I mean, his, his, if you add up his post-ups and his isolation possessions per hundred possessions on the court together, he's isolating more than 80% of players in the NBA. It's not, super high levels, but it's not nothing. So there's something there. And on those possessions, he has an A minus effective field goal percentage, A minus impact overall, when you look at the volume and the efficiency. So there's, there's some pulse there with that more than a lot of players. And I think adding that in to the group of guys you have already and adding in someone who's as strong a role man, as strong uh, a defensive player, I'm sorry, an offensive finisher at the rim, I see it being a fit. I do agree that he'd be more a finisher than a creator, but I think how you use him in actions as a guy who can roll to the rim or as a guy that can pop helps complement some of those other pieces that optimize well and run running the right plays using the right actions. I still think it's a pretty good fit, but if you're really concerned about making sure you go get a guy who's going to create a little bit more, he might not be my top pick and there might not be that guy this off season. Yeah, and I don't think that there's really anybody this offseason, at least who fits that sort of positional size need for the Spurs. And one Mm -hmm. of the other guys who I'll throw out to you real quick, Laurie Markkinen. To me, I would avoid him if I'm the Spurs. I don't think he makes a lot of sense for them. What do you think of him? Do you think he would be a good fit for the Spurs? Do you think he makes enough impact to make them even a playoff team in the West next season? I wouldn't. So I, I will have, to, there are a lot of moving parts and I don't know what else would happen with other pieces of the roster, but he, I wouldn't take like this roster ad market and, and expect that to be a huge unlocking piece that helps you jump. He's a very good shooter. He's likely going to be renounced by Chicago. They're going to probably let him walk and he's really good at what he's good at. He's just not good in plenty of other areas, but I see plenty of potential and I see enough skill areas that he's, pretty strong in like he's a good off-screen player good off-screen shooter pretty good cutter he is pretty good at finishing at the rim although he's not really creating for himself at the rim he's a very good three-point shooter uh he doesn't isolate a ton but when he does he's he's done a decent job and uh on the defensive boards he does a pretty good job so there's plenty that you can have concerns about but i do think that I'm interested to see where he lands this offseason because I think there's something there. There's talent there that if harnessed and put in the right environment, you could make a little bit more out of. And I'm not sure if the Spurs are that fit, but he would certainly be a, a floor spacer that would complement, you know, three or four more core pieces we've talked about today that aren't really floor spacers. So he could be one of those guys that just from a fit standpoint makes some sense. 
and just between Collins and Markinen, is it Collins over Markinen for sure by a wide margin? Oh, or absolutely. Is it close? Okay. Oh no, 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 by a lot. <laughs> Markinen is somebody that if if you don't end up nailing any of those other bigger names, you're not able to go, you know, grab someone who you feel pretty confident can have a strong impact. He's somebody that. I would go into the offseason looking to just kind of like grab it as a reclamation project and put in a better environment, put in a better situation with, with, you know, a, a better sets, better coaching and be able to make more out of him. Cause he's worth more than his market value is going to be like, he's, he's a better player than he's, he's shown. And if you, a team with cap space can just go pay, you know, six million a year instead of the five-year taxpayer MLE or whatever it takes to, to go grab him that you can get, plenty of surplus value on that. And as a team rebuilding like the Spurs and, you know, with any team that wants to end up competing, you have to have those guys that are able to provide more value than you're paying for them. And he's someone that could get there and might be like a buy low sell high in the future or, you know, cash in high uh, in a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you there. And I think that's, I'm really appreciative that you kind of broke that down for me. Now, one of the other topics that has been like really big for Spurs fans is Ben Simmons. Now I, there really hasn't been any buzz that they're going to acquire Ben Simmons, but if a player like that is available and the Spurs think they can get him for say a DeMar DeRozan and, and a couple of first round picks, is that a player that they should look to acquire? I know that, you know, we talked about fit in terms of a guy who probably needs to be surrounded by shooters, San Antonio, is not that place right now, but is he someone who, if he's available that they have to go after, or do you think, you know, just continue to build with what you got and see what you get in free agency? I mean, if he's, if he's cheap enough that you can pay DeMar DeRozan, who I think this person will move on from anyway. And then a couple firsts, I would do that, but I don't, I like strongly believe that this is not close to the top situations to make the most out of Ben Simmons. Like with him, you want to have him partnered with a dynamic pick and roll ball handler. That's, going to be a good enough three-point shooter that he's drawing multiple defenders. Your, your big man can't play drop coverage. They have to really come up aggressively and either trap or show him recover or like a soft hedge, something that puts two defenders on the ball in a way that creates those short roll opportunities that we've seen a guy like Draymond Green be so, so good at. And we've seen guys like uh, Hassan Whiteside, Nikola, uh, I'm sorry, Yusuf Nurkic last season, last playoffs, not this one, against the Lakers be so bad at. It's it's that short <laughs> roll. It can be so valuable. And that is the type of skill set that not too many bigs have or not too many players that could be a, a screen and roll kind of guy have. If Simmons is partnered with DeJounte Murray and they're just going under his ball screens, he's never getting any of those short rolls. So <laughs> it, it's just one of those, you know, if you're going to unlock Ben Simmons and make him the most he can be, San Antonio with their current roster is not the place to do that. I would so much rather see him go to be partnered with a Dame Lillard or, I mean, I don't think he's going to be able to make his way to Dallas, but Luca or Trey Young or one of those guys that draws those two defenders. Cause then if he's good enough in those four V three short rolls, then you can't send those two defenders against those ball handlers in the ball screens. And you're as a defense, you're just stuck. If you can't trap Dame Lillard and you're giving up those pull up threes, you're in trouble. And if you send two guys and that opens the four V three short roll and Ben Simmons is able to, you know, wheel and deal as he's driving at the rim, you, you know, there's really no win there. So that is why Draymond Green has been so successful with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and just kind of the type of uh, route I would want to be taking with the Ben Simmons and the Spurs just aren't that place. Yeah, I can, I can firmly say that I wasn't expecting you to say much else besides that. I just was curious about what you might say when I threw that out there. I don't really think Ben Simmons makes a lot of sense for San Antonio, but I'll sort of close on this. What do you feel is the best direction for this franchise if they really want to establish themselves, you know, back in that sort of contender 
stratosphere? I think you need to set. So the first thing is they need to, they need to figure out if their core pieces are going to be their core pieces. And if so, what they're good at is getting to the rim and you've got some good defenders and you need to throw some self-creation and some shooting around that. And we've brought up a couple of players today that kind of fit the bill there, but that would be the general, those general kinds of skill sets are, would be what I would be targeting. Like how do we build a cohesive group of roles and skill sets and players that, you know, put all together, they're able to be more than just those separate components. So you're really looking for that fit. And I think you have to be a team that turns the page from some of these older players that aren't going to be part of the future and jump on opportunities, be one of those few key players with money this offseason and go see if you can get, I don't know, a Josh Hart for $8 million a year if the Pelicans aren't going to match that. Like go find values because the market right now has a lot of players with, with these teams that only have their exceptions to use. So you know X amount of teams have the taxpayer MLE. They're all, they can only offer five mil a year. If we offer seven mil a year, it's not a crazy amount of money, but we know we can just barely beat it. It's like playing uh, like Price is Right. If you go, <laughs> you know, just one over them, everything above it counts for you. So in reality, the price might be higher, but if you're the closest bidder, you might still, you know, win that Price is Right. So that is kind of my general <laughs> approach. You know, you can punt the cap space if you don't find good deals, but go hunting for those bargains because if you make enough of those good moves and you add on to what you have and these guys continue to grow, that is how you build a championship contender. Well, Tim, thank you so much for really giving me your insight there. I, Spurs fans have heard me talk about this team a bunch, I, I, you know, probably more than they want to hear. And I'm glad that I got a sort of analytical approach to this. And I, I do appreciate you hopping on here with me. And before I let you go, uh, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of plug anything that you're working on. Let Spurs fans know where they can find you on social media and where they can find your content. Yeah, of course. So I don't think you're going to want to follow any of my Lakers stuff. So don't follow my <laughs> podcast. Um, but you can follow me on Twitter at Tim underscore NBA. I talk a lot of general NBA stuff as well as the Lakers, of course. Um, my website is Basketball Index, B-Ball Index. It's the underscore B-Ball underscore Index on Twitter. On there, you can find all sorts of stats that are all contextualized. They all have these letter grades, percentiles, color coding, lots of interactive tools we are really leaning into the idea that like players are more than their efficiency. And there's more to basketball than just these, just these boring stats that only look at if the ball went in or out, there's so much more context to the game. And we approach that with like our matchup difficulty, our positional versatility, the impact metrics we use, our talent grades, which we didn't really talk about today, where we look at not just if you're good or bad at something, but are you good or bad at it? And then how do we account for your volume and like the, the context around you is, is Rudy Gobert standing behind you and that makes you a better defender, uh, more, or look like a better defender than you are. Little context, things like that to evaluate your true talent as a perimeter shooter or a finisher or a playmaker. These are the sorts of things that we look to quantify and we have available on our site. A lot of it's for free. There are 20 different free pages on the site, but then we also have our data and tools package, which is just five bucks a month. And you get to see all sorts of different things. Our player profilers, I'm sorry, there are player profiles have every player since 2013, 2014, all the way through now in the NBA. So that's like thousands of players and for each guy, you have like 240, 250 different stats, everything you could want to know about a guy's tendencies, skill sets, proficiency, efficiency, impact, whatever it might be, those badges, their jobs, their roles, 
all of that in one place. You can close the other 14 tabs you have <laughs> trying to pull up every stat you can on DeJounte Murray. We have it in one place. So go check that out over at B-Ball Index. I strongly endorse paying that $5 subscription fee. I do it, and they have so many tools that make it more than worth the money. So thanks again, Tim, for joining me, and thanks to everyone who tuned in for this edition of Alamo City Limits. And for those of you listening at home, make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a fantastic staff of writers over at Pounding the Rock who do an amazing job of keeping everyone up to date with their favorite team. So check our stuff out. But until next time, take care, Spurs fans.